And I talked to a junior attending there and I'm like, are you happy here? And he's like, well, it's getting better. And I'm like, what do you mean it's getting better? I'm like, you spend your whole life. It's getting better. Like you can't just exist in this. It's always going to get, it's getting better. I'm working towards some, you know, delayed gratification for your whole life. Hey, it's Justin Harvey. Thanks for tuning into the Anesthesia and Pain Management Success Podcast. With APM Success, we take a close look at important topics pertaining to business, practice management, personal finance, and careers for anesthesiologists and pain management physicians. We work hard to take your critical questions straight to the experts. Thanks for listening. Hello and welcome to episode 169 of APM Success. I'm very pleased to be joined today by Dr. Daniel Paul. Dr. Paul is an orthopedic surgeon with a really cool story I'm excited to dig into today. He's the founder of Easy Orthopedics in Colorado Springs, which is a concierge orthopedic practice, and he makes house calls, which I'm so excited to hear about. He's also uh, a disruptor in the medical field, a forward thinker, and an independent one. I'm really pleased to be bringing him to your eardrums this morning. So, Dr. Paul, thanks for being here. Hey, Justin, uh, thanks for having me on your show. There's so many places I'm interested to start. To, to begin, let's. I'm. I want to understand the man a little bit before we get into sort of your business. So, why don't you tell me about the genesis of your interest in medicine and what sort of drew you to becoming a physician? Gotcha. So with me personally, there's no physicians in my family. I'm the only one. I come from a long line of engineers. And what happened to me was I had a bad skiing accident when I was 14 and I skied into a tree. I'm lucky I didn't die. And that was like right around the time of like Sonny Bono and like one of the Kennedys and like, you know, and anyways, I broke my right arm and both my legs, you know, both femurs, left hip, fib. Wow. And so I went from being like totally debilitated and then through the miracle of modern orthopedics, essentially able to move and do things again. And, you know, I ran track in high school and it was kind of this whole story of like, I'm like, oh, I feel like I was kind of meant to do this. Like this thing happened to me. So wow. that was basically what made me decide to go into medicine, specifically orthopedics. It's not like I wanted to be an internal medicine doctor. It's not like I went to the medical school saying like, oh, you know, well, I don't really know what kind of doc. I'm like, I only want to do orthopedics. And it's mm-hmm. like, if I don't match orthopedics, I'm like, well, I'll do something else. So I was uh-huh. pretty, it's kind of typical of orthopedic surgeons to have some sort of story like that. I was, you know, probably pretty similar to a lot of them in that regard. They tear their ACL or something happens, but that, that was pretty much how I decided to go into medicine to start the journey, I guess. Cool. So then you you do med school, you're on the trajectory, you're you get into residency, things are things are progressing probably the way you envisioned as that, you know, aspiring orthopedist. And then somewhere along the line, you kind of took this, I don't want to call it a hard left turn, that's perhaps an overstatement, but your thinking evolved about how you wanted to practice medicine. So tell us about that journey. Gotcha. So I'll say that the orthopedic surgery is a five-year residency. I'll tell you that when I was sitting at the end of that residency, I was not thinking at all about doing a practice like I had, like not even the slightest bit. If you had told me what I, that I would have done this, I would have been just completely shocked. So like it, it was not on the radar. I never thought about it. I was going to go complete fellowship and then get a job and work in the system and do essentially what everybody else did. That's what I was planning on doing, but that's just not what happened. <laughs> So oftentimes, you know, when life is messy and you have going through medical school and residency, this very linear path kind of carved out of a very messy existence of just life in general. And I think that's kind of a rarity and and life actually really doesn't work like that so well. 
for at least most of the majority of people. So here's what happened with me specifically. So I get out of residency. I decide I want to do hand surgery. Now I do general now. I don't operate on all of it, but I certainly see general. I see including spine. Doesn't mean I'm operating on it, but I see it. So I say, I'm just going to do hand surgery. So I start a hand fellowship. And about halfway through, things weren't really going so hot. There was basically a couple problems that happened. One was I couldn't find a freaking job where I wanted to live. Now, my wife is from Colorado, specifically Colorado Springs, and that's where I am now. And I've dragged her to Florida, Ohio, you know, all over the map. And it was always this thing, like, we're going to move back to Colorado. That's where her family is. We have a little young kid now. Our daughter, first daughter is like a year at at that time. And it's like, I'm trying to find a job out in Colorado and I on the front range somewhere, right? Doesn't need to be in Colorado Springs, like somewhere in this 200 mile radius. And I can't find one. Or if I do find one, there's no better, they're, they're not good. Meaning that they're like, hey, here's a four month guarantee. Hmm. Now, for all those listening, standard is two years of salary. This is like four month build. You can't build a practice in four months. Or, hey, take our entire level three call for the entire practice 24 hmm. seven. And so, like, I just couldn't, that's what was out there. Right. And so I'm like, all right, well, let me interview in Connecticut, which is where I'm from. And it was just this me interviewing. I only went on one interview for a job and it was this old senior partner. And he was so bitter telling me how much money he used to make in the early nineties. And it was just, it just did not seem like a good environment. And I talked to a junior attending there and I'm like, are you happy here? And he's like, well, it's getting better. And I'm like, what do you mean it's getting better? I'm like, you spend your whole life, it's getting better. Like, you can't just exist in this. It's always going to get, it's getting better. I'm working towards some, you know, delayed gratification for your whole life. And like, it was, it created this sort of existential crisis in me. You're like, well, like, what am I doing? You know, like I made the decision to do this when I was 14 years old, where I didn't know anything about anything. And I liked the practice of orthopedics, but it seemed like the, the curtain of reality was closing down of like, oh my God, like, this is not going to be what I thought it was. I'm not going to be able to live like where I want to live. And it, it could just see major problems happening. How long ago was that Connecticut conversation? Mm, Four years ago, maybe. Uh, Let me think. Yeah, probably, probably four years ago. Okay. Four years ago. So that was, that was this existential crisis is brewing. Mm -hmm. And, and then the second kind of crisis that happened, because there's a lot of momentum docs, as we know, are super stubborn to keep you on this course that you wanted to start on. So, Another thing happens is I'm in this fellowship and I don't really want to go into too many details, but I'll put it this way. It was not a positive educational experience for me. And you can take of that what you want, right? Fellowship is an optional year that I don't need to do. And in my program in residency, a lot of people would do general. So, you know, I'm flying out there, I'm spending a year to educate, be, educate myself and learn. And I'll just say it was not a positive educational experience. So <laughs> those two things are brewing. And I'm like, I don't know what I'm going to do, you know? And I had this friend in medical school, and he started this practice doing internal medicine, essentially, where he was mobile and did house calls and was only cash. And like we all laughed at him when he started. We're like, "What the heck is this guy doing?" <laughs> you know, as we're in res, you know. And then years go by, and it turns out, well, a he's happier than anybody else that I know in medicine, and he's also doing better financially. So I'm like, all right, there's something here. And it was kind of this moment of existential crisis, desperation, you know, all just unhappiness, all congealed together into this big ball of energy, a negative energy. And it, I, I had to just make a change. So I, I quit my fellowship. I broke my lease and I just moved out to Colorado. 
So now I have no income. Of course, we have two cars. Both of them break. <laughs> I was hoping to, you know, during that time period, you know, I move into my in-laws basement in Colorado Springs. So now I'm in the basement and I'm just like, okay, I'm going to try to get this direct orthopedic care practice going. No, I you know I can't, I don't want to take insurance. I know it can't to be sustainable. And also they make me do things I don't want to do. I, I don't, we could talk more, we'll talk more about that later, but you know, they essentially control your practice. They control your life. They make running a practice by yourself unsustainable in the sense that they continually increase your overhead and then lower your reimbursement. So <laughs> you're getting squeezed on both ends. So it makes it so you can't really exist in small practice. But anyways, so it was really outside that world. And I started mobile and then it just kind of went from there. Now it's been about three and a half years later. I'm in my own house. I'm in my own basement right now from this podcast. So I've switched basements. Um, Sounds like an upgrade. It was upgrade. No, and it's going it's going well. And you know, been a lot of pioneering, a lot of figuring things out. But that was essentially the genesis of it. And I mean, it was kind of a funny spot to be in where my friends are graduating fellowship and they're getting these large salaries, and I'm in the basement like with two sticks, rubbing them together, trying to figure out <laughs> what to do. But that's what that's how it happened. It was messy. It was complicated. There's a bunch of negative things going on that congealed together to form this, like I said, ball of negative energy that just was able to drive me off track, a very defined track to kind of do something different. Yeah. There's a friend of mine and I talk about living the most interesting life possible as something that, and, and the way that we are wired, there's an inherent desirability. Now, obviously this isn't for everyone, but I think going off the beaten track and experiencing something new and different and getting out of your comfort zone and blazing a new trail is for me, I mean, I think that's just inherently exciting. So I'm really enamored with this journey. I mean, it was founded out of desperation. So, I mean, like it's when you have to do it, you you have to do it. I mean, I was in Colorado Springs. It's not like I could just go down the street and get a job there. I just quit my fellowship, you know, which would raise questions. That's not a, for those, you know, that are listening that don't know, that's not a normal thing to do. You know, to complete four years of medical school, five years of a residency, then halfway through a year fellowship, be like, nah, I'm done. So like I didn't have those options like I could go down the street and get a job like I couldn't find one there anyways. So it was it was desperate times called for desperate measures. So I want to link to some resources in the show notes. So for any of our listeners, apmsuccess.com/slash one six nine. This is episode one hundred and sixty nine. I'm going to link to uh, Dr. Paul's website, which is easyorthopedics.com. Would love for you to check it out. There on the homepage, he it says this: disrupting the healthcare status quo. By cutting out all the middlemen and delivering relationship-based care that values your time. Tell me about how you sort of developed a vision for the practice that you wanted. Gotcha. So yeah, so I started this kind of out of desperation. And as I did got into it and I saw that the model kind of worked, it's like, you know, there's a whole subset of the population that's really not getting served well by the system. You have people that don't have insurance who, when they go to see a standard doc, well, how much, I, I gave a lady a hip injection, a hip injection yesterday and she was cash pay and she could not nail them down on a price that the practice near where she lives. So she drove an hour out to see me. Wow. But like, there's people that aren't served well. And these are people who are not like impoverished. So they're not taken care of well. And then also there's people who have high deductibles who don't want to use any of their medical care. And like, they're not served well either. So it's not really for just like rich people. It's it's for like a lot of people that are not served well. And the more I kind of got into it, the more I've kind of like, hey, that'll like I, I, once I got I, I forced myself out of the old system, and I'm like, you know, that system was really messed up in a lot of ways and continues to get worse. And now it's kind of this crusade against it to kind of disrupt it. 
And the best way I know how to do that is by not is by just removing them from the part the practice of it. I mean, you could go the legislative route, but good luck. I mean, you're fighting these companies with multi-billion-dollar lobbying arms, and you know you're talking about in small change that takes a while and then gets corrupted. But well, this maybe is you like have a future in policy. You never know. I mean, I hope not. Um, <laughs> but you know, this disruption is immediate. Immediately, I've removed insurance companies and hospital yeah. systems. The two people that are really profit-driven are systems and mess up medical care. In my opinion, they're gone. They don't exist in my model. And essentially, all you really need in a doctor-patient relationship is the doctor and the patient, and then everything, well, mostly everything else is superfluous. So I've really removed all that, and it's disruptive in its own small way. Can you talk about the way you think about like the scope of services you provide and how you refine that over time? And I, you know, for just from a brief look at your website, there's some what I would call sort of classically orthopedic treatments, and then there's some other more concierge medicine type that maybe like a direct primary care doc could render. Yeah. So I kind of see myself in that same world as direct primary care doctors. We're all in that same bubble. They figured it out. The family docs are way ahead of us here. Both pain management, anesthesia, ortho, they're way ahead of us. Why? Because they hit that pain point so much earlier than us. So like, you know, they didn't, they made less money, got squeezed a lot harder. And so they've by necessity figured out direct primary care, which by the way, to me is the best care you can get. I use it for myself and my family where they've made that model. And now it's, it's tried and true, but the specialists, we haven't really gotten there yet because we're just starting to hit those pain points. So I'm an outlier right now. Orthopedics will probably be one of the later ones to join, but it's this new realm of like, well, what does orthopedic care look like in a direct care world? It, will, it looks a little bit different than what it looks like, how we're used to seeing it. So I'm still figuring that out. So in the direct care world, primary care doctors will do a lot more than they normally will do mostly for better, sometimes for worse. But I'm kind of figuring out my context in that sphere. Mm -hmm. When you uh, compare notes with fellow residents of yours after a handful of years, what are the conversations like? (laughs) Well, one, they're just like, how's how's this guy doing? Like, what are you doing? And they're so curious because I just, you know, at the time when I left my co-residents, and they're just like, they felt, I think they're like, oh my God, something really bad happened to him. You know, let's leave him alone. Like he kind of really went out like, this isn't good. So people were very respectful, left me alone. And now they see I'm still doing it. It's like, I think they're just kind of curious about it. They don't really know. And then strangely enough, when I meet with other orthopods, well, one of two things usually happen. One is that they either try to tell me that what I'm doing in a weird way is not really going to work which is false because it, it does work. It, you know, that's easy to say to someone when, before they start their business. But after it's been going for four years, you know, what can you say to me? You know what I mean? It right. works. <laughs> right. You can't tell me it's not going to work because it actually works. And the second is they always try to drag me back into the system in some way. Like, oh, well, maybe you can get this job. Like a job just opened up here in Baltimore. I'm like, I don't want it. Like, I don't want to do that. Or like, oh, maybe you can get credentialing privileges at this hospital in town. And maybe you can help me with some cases. I'm like, no, I'm like, that defeats my vision and purpose. Like, I do not interact with those systems. So I, I don't, it's I'm kind of just, I think, an oddity at this point. And then the people that I know, they're in orthopedics. So he's trying to kind of drag me back in. Hmm. I feel like it's like, you know, I think it's from the Godfather. It's like, they try to keep dragging me back in, but I, you know, I stay out. I'm not going back. It's like, the, the best thing I can liken to direct care is it's like unplugging from the matrix. Hmm. Like once you're out, and you kind of see what it looks like from the outside, like you, you and you've experienced like happiness and practicing medicine. Like you cannot go back, like you just can't. 
Like you're, yeah. you're, you're, you're ruined in that sense. Like I can't, yeah. I, I can't go back in. That's, uh, that's incredible. I feel kind of the same way about my business, which I very much enjoy. I always joke that I'd be a bad employee anywhere at this point. There's, there's no going back. Oh yeah. I'm unemployable. I'm unemployable yeah. <laughs> except by myself. Exactly. Talk about what does a day in your life look like? So it's variable. I mean, you know, it's a low volume, low overhead model. That does not mean low profit. Okay. I want to be clear about this because people think it's not because you're not seeing anybody, you're not doing, you're not making anything. But the overhead is so ridiculously low that you really don't need to. Now, when I say relationship based care, I had a biller literally laugh in my face one time about it. But the idea behind it is that it's hard to do a good job in a medical visit when you're only allotted about seven minutes on average of FaceTime. Now, let's say visit book for 15 minutes, you have all this documentation. It's hard to do a good job, even if you're a good doctor. Now, if one person has one med- if a per- patient who's a good historian has one medical problem and they understand it, fine. But once you start getting people with multiple medical problems, which a lot of people have, or you start getting someone who's a bad historian or you combine the two, I think that the, the quality of care diminishes immensely just based on the, the delivery of care being crunched into these time periods. And patients notice it too. Like he didn't listen to me. He came in the room for two minutes. It's, it's not good care. I don't, I don't care. You could be the best doc in the world, but you're just working in a model of delivery that doesn't value, doesn't let you use your full skill set. So it's relationship-based. So the visits are long. They're booked for an hour. Sometimes they go less. Sometimes they go more. And if they have ten, five, six, seven problems, we're going to talk about all of them. Um, and I traveled to them. So it used to be just house calls. And then after I did them for a while, I'd find people in the community who would say, hey, can you see this patient at my office? They're going to be here Tuesday at 10. I'm like, okay. So I'm seeing patients at offices now that are not my offices, whether it be a chiropractic place or physical therapy, direct primary care, other people who are in the world of cash. So you know, sometimes I'll line them up where it's a couple at an office. I'll go do a house call. I'll do some medical legal work, have meetings. Some days I don't have anything at all going on. But like I said, my overhead is like $2,000 a month. So I mean, if I do have a day where I don't do anything, you know, then I work on the business and do other sorts of things. Um, the practice is only me and my wife. So we're a two-person practice and um, it works. I mean, so the days are variable. They're not super busy. I usually spend a lot of time with my family and kids. But again, it doesn't mean it's not profitable. Um, How did but- you get connected to like business resources? And do you have a background in understanding that or when you wanted to like, you know, set up your own entity and start thinking about patient volume and revenue per patient and overhead? And how do I make a P&L work? And how do I make sure I'm going to actually make money doing this? How did you sort of assemble those resources? YouTube. Yeah. <laughs> All right. YouTube and a library card. I'll be honest with you. So for me in small business and my belief about business skills and everything like that is that you really don't need an MBA. It's it's you're not working. If MBA is good for a lot of things, large corporations, things like that. But if you're working in the world of small business, a lot of it is human behavior and psychology. So if you can kind of master that and know when you trust someone and know when to make good decisions, I think you'll do all right. But at the same time, I, I do continuously read books with a library card about mostly behavioral psychology at this point. Hmm. But and then it was kind of just learning by going. I you know I would talk to people who done it before me. What are you doing here? I'd read books. I'd look at YouTube videos. I mean, but you know, making an LLC and getting a business bank account EIN number is not too complicated. And it's like just you know. So most of the business decisions I make are you know it's uh, you get burned a little bit. You change your system processes. I've always loved working with system processes. And as you know, working at a hospital, good luck trying to get 
two words changed on the consent form. I mean, but when yeah. you have your own business, I mean, the changes are immediate, immediate, you can make them. And so we can continuously improve our processes. So it's been more of a trial and error, figuring it out as I go, ready, fire, aim, I like to mm-hmm. say, rather than, you know, let me just get a degree in business and do something. So I never really generated all those. I mean, I did everything legally, but like, you know, I'm not really, I have obviously accounting sheets and, and accounts receivables now. But I kind of put those in as I go, you know, like, mm-hmm. well, I'm getting a lot of these accounts, just like I'm having it, I had it on a notepad of like people that owed me money. I'm like, you know, I probably should put this in an Excel sheet. <laughs> you know, <laughs> there's things like that. Again, for listeners, if you go to easyorthopedics.com slash pricing, and this is going to blow your mind, you're going to see a list of the services that will be rendered by Dr. Paul and how much they cost, <laughs> which is something that, you know, the policy has been hammering at hospitals to do for couple of years now. And I think it's sort of in the process of being rolled out is that hospitals have to disclose how much CPT codes cost for the most popular procedures with the payer contracts that they have on file. And and here there's this ready transparency to pricing. So I'm curious, tell me a little bit about your experience of pricing transparency and what that means to you. And how did you figure out how much to charge? Gotcha. So I mean, price. So that what you're seeing there is the, the we call the discounted cash pricing, meaning that if you pay me immediately at the time of the visit, that's what it's going to cost. You know, there's some personal injury work I do on lean, and that uh, you know, if you don't get paid for a long time, so you know that would be like obviously not a discounted cash price. But how do you figure out pricing? You make it up. I mean, you make it up, right? And if it's the wrong pricing, then people won't use your service. So I think a lot of docs what they do when they price things out is they price them too low initially. Like I talked to a primary care doc, like I'm going to do like $50 a visit. Or like I'm like, that's too low because people will be suspect, suspicious of it. Yeah. So you want to price it kind of in a normal sort of realm of that. And if it's too high, people you know won't use the service because it's too high. So a lot of it was seeing what other people charge, but there's not too many people doing what I'm doing. So I really had to just kind of figure out where I'm in, what that settled out to. And then... As far as surgeries, that can be hard too, because if you're working with a surgery center, you can't control all those variables. So the surgeries that I can price at are done in a procedure room where I have a very reliable price point. Mm -hmm. And and those are the things I'm able to do there. So I've tried to put as much on there as I can. I think it helps. Uh, You know, it really shouldn't be that hard. Everything else in the world has prices on it or almost everything. So people want to know what they're paying before. And I think they like that they're not getting surprise bills. You know, if if I eat it on one of those things that I do, well, that's on me for pricing it wrong, which has happened. But I don't make it so that they owe me extra. So in pain management specifically, that's the specialty that I think dovetails with what you do. And I could envision a concierge pain pain, uh, physician doing something like what you're describing. If there's a doctor out there who's thinking about either adding like a concierge cash model to their practice or just launching one, what advice would you give them? I would say first, it depends on what your goals are. So first, I would check your insurance contracts and let's see if they even allow you to do that. So Medicare does not. So if you, I'm opted out of Medicare, so I can legally see a Medicare patient and charge them cash and they have to sign special form and everything. But if you're part of Medicare, you can't do that. Now, I think private insurance companies have started to follow suit. So you may want to see that, you know, they might not allow you to do it. Now you have to see if you create a different business organization. Maybe you can get away with it. I don't know. So that would be step this is one. Where we say talk to a good healthcare attorney to make sure that you don't right. get thrown in jail. That's step one if you're in the system and planning on doing it. Otherwise, you can cancel all your contracts and remove yourself from Medicare. 
then you should be fine. That would be the first step. But the second step is if you can't do that, at least establish a separate business entity to handle cash. Because if you try to combine that with your insurance-based practice, it won't work because your insurance-based practice is built for insurance and it's so resource-intensive yeah. that when cash comes along, which is a cash pay patient, which is not resource-intensive, it's going to get subsumed in that. And so you'll have you know your people calling and you know like how much it's not going to work. So the only time I've seen where businesses are able to make that work is if they create an autonomous separate business unit away from their original one. So you would have to do something like that. That's just separate business, simple, different. And if you can find a way to make it work, maybe use the same office space. That it just ha- it has to have a different mentality. That's what I would say. And then you can kind of start. The hard part is not even setting it up. It's really just the marketing of it and getting people to realize this is something they can do and, yeah. and that sort of thing. It's going from becoming a technical expert in a specialty where you've been training for like 10 years to all of a sudden being a business owner and having this whole new skill set, which is totally underdeveloped that you have to get up to speed on very quickly in order to make that practice work. Yeah. I mean, right. And the other thing is time that you need to devote to business skills. So like yep. docs are very, very bad at business. Because I think intelligent people, right? But you know, I think one is we don't have we're not trained in it. Two is we don't have the time to devote to it. And three is we're used to making uh, decisions in the face of unknown variables. We do that successfully in medicine, and I think try to apply that to business. And you just have, I mean, I, I mean, I'm sure you've seen it. I've seen it as well. Like this one surgeon had five separate offices in different locations. It's like, why did you do that? Well, someone told me I could capture more patients. It's like, yeah, but you also quintupled your overhead. Yeah. You know, or close to it. So, I mean, I, I see, you see stuff like that all the time or, you know, I don't know. Talk a little bit about your uh, sort of financial preparedness and transition going from, you know, thinking mentally about a salary with a fixed amount of money coming in to being in an entrepreneurial mindset and having to bridge that gap. Right. So, I mean, when I set it up, the startup cost was super low because I didn't have an office. So I think it was like five, $7,000 for me to get everything aligned, malpractice, and supplies, and on mobile. And so you'll find, at least what I did is I reduced my risk. So I had a very high risk in business. So what did I do? I reduced my risk profile in a personal setting. Mm-hmm. So I moved into my in-laws basement, You know, eliminate debt that I had. So we essentially, our costs of living are extremely low. So that's what I did on a, on a personal note. But I think to get to your point, you know, a lot of people think, well, I've got this salary. It's super stable. Entrepreneurship is unstable. But I mean, you could have a salary at a job and then one day get laid off or lose your job. And you go from making hundreds of thousands of dollars to zero overnight. Yeah. Overnight. So like, there's, there, there's this unseen risk that people have that they don't realize. Mm-hmm. I lost my job. I got to sell my house and move. When you're an entrepreneur, and what a lot of entrepreneurs do is get the revenue from multiple different sources, that's a very hard thing to have happen to you because one thing could blow up, but you've got five more. So the ironic, uh, I don't know if it's ironically is the right word, but there's a stability to it. It's, 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 it's ironically stable. And, and, and my business model is also ironically super, it's ironically durable, more so than a standard job in the system. So but yeah, money flows and you also start to get a better sense of like, well, what does money actually mean? Yeah. And it's a very strange quantity that we deal with. So it lives in the world of extremes. So, I mean, if I were to give you a bunch of wood and say, Justin, chop as much wood as you could in an hour, like you would only chop so much wood. And then when you're done, you would have this wood there to do whatever with, right? 
But money doesn't live in that physical world. You know, you could buy a stock and make stupid amounts of money, or you could lose all the money you ever have in in a, in a single day without actually moving. So it exists in this world of extremes. And I think when you're working for someone, they shelter you from that world by being like, you work this much, you get this much. So they're matching the inputs to the outputs. But with money, it doesn't work like that. The inputs don't always match the outputs. You know, So you could work a lot and lose money, or you could work a little bit and make a ton of money. So a lot of it was kind of getting a better understanding of like the existence of money as just a strange, non-physical quantity and actually believing a little bit less in it, if that makes any sense. And I think anybody who's very successful has similar thoughts. And then also being used to like, okay, my money comes in spurts now. But I think that actually makes you better with it. A lot of my middle school friends all became DJs for whatever reason. Why? I have no idea. But strangely, they're all much better with money because they're used to making it in spurts and then not having any gigs for a while. So I think that when you get it irregularly, it makes you better at planning. It is actually a good thing for your own financial health in a weird way. Yeah. I, uh, I had a brief stint as a wedding DJ. That was a lot of fun. And nice. it's good dollars per hour. And you're curating a party, which is like one of the most fun things you can do. So anybody who's looking for a side gig to transition to a concierge medicine, you should consider DJing. Highly yeah, just yeah, forget all the medicine. Just start DJing. <laughs> I'm curious if there was a, a moment for you when you thought, okay, I think I, think I have exit velocity. I think this is going to work. I think I'm not going to have to go back. Or if you started with such conviction, you're like, I don't care. And I'm not going to stop until it works. The exit velocity was when everything blew up and I quit my fellowship. I mean, that was like stratospheric launch. I didn't know where I was going to land. So (laughs) I thought it would work. I didn't know if it would work. So, you know, I just did it. I I, I don't know if there's a better way to explain it. Like I I just started and I just kept going and refused, refused to lose. It was much messier than that. It wasn't like, I've got this plan. I'm going to start. I'm going to quit my job, which is a good way to do things. That's just not how I ended up doing what I did. That's normally how I do things. But when you have such like a catastrophic, crazy thing happen to you, it's, it's, you don't have those decisions anymore. So you mentioned that you're married. You have a little one. As you sort of discussed this with your spouse, were they were obviously on board. I mean, I think they saw the situation that we were in that was not good. And so they were just supportive of us just leaving the situation that we were in and moving and, and, and just leaving. It was more about leaving than starting initially. And then once we left, and it was more about starting. So they were supportive of that. You know, they wanted to go back to Colorado as well. So like I said, sometimes life is just messy. and You just kind of go with the chaos, at least in the beginning. So that's, yeah. like I said, it's not like the rest of my life was like that. I'm pretty well thought out and planned, but... You know, when calamity happens, it, it happens. And not that everybody needs calamity, but that was certainly a driving force for me. As you think about the next year or two and what lies ahead, what types of things do you want to be working on or evolving in your practice? Or what are the challenges you're facing right now that you're trying to kind of solve? Gotcha. So there's, there's a couple. So one is I would like to probably the, the, the surgical practice has been slow to build and my practice is, is, fine, is, is successful without surgery. But I would like to kind of build that more. And that's just taking time to kind of figure out the right places to go and do things. So that, that's, that's a slow build there. I probably at some point will actually get an office. I'll probably still be mobile, but it'd be nice to have a home base. Mm-hmm. But I don't, I don't want to lease anything because I hate the idea of paying a five to 10 year lease, paying the property taxes and the insurance and common fees. You know, yeah. And then having to pay for the build-up. <laughs> Might as well buy the building myself. So that's on the horizon, I think. 
But as far as problems I want to solve, so this is a new sort of problem that I've discovered that I don't think, I think other people are discovering as well in the world of direct care is that when you have a primary care doctor in the system, they tend to refer out a lot. There's an ortho problem, see ortho, kidney problem, see nephrology. And that's kind of what they're forced to do because they have no time to spend with anybody. Then you go to the world with direct care, which like, like I said, is the best care you can get. And that pendulum sort of swings in the other direction where they're going to say, well, I really don't want to send you out for anything. First of all, sometimes there's not anybody to send you out with who's not in the system. There's no direct specialty care. So it might be out of necessity. And, and they'll, they'll tend to keep a lot, which is usually good. But I've noticed that sometimes, at least in the world of the musculoskeletal area, they'll tend to keep things that they probably shouldn't. And it's not to the best result of the patient. Like I've seen people keep ankle fractures that are tenuous or you know, do sacroiliac joint injections blind. I mean, I do them under ultrasound, you know, thing, you start getting into things like that, that it probably it's not in the best interest of the patient for them to mess around because let's be honest, you know, they don't really get a lot of musculoskeletal training. And that's for me as an orthopedic surgeon, that's all I did for five years. So right. I'm trying to figure out my context in there and kind of have a more proactive approach there, hmm. really in terms of musculoskeletal cost containment for large employers who are using direct primary care. So that's kind of a work in progress. I would like to kind of solve that problem and really find out what, what, better, you know, instead of a primary care doc treating everything and only sending out when, you know, so look, some of them are good at sending out when they know they're kind of above their pay grade, some aren't. It's kind of more solving that problem. And I think it'd be better either by being available to them or by seeing the patient myself. So that's something that a problem that I'm I'm trying to solve. And there's other people that want to solve it as well because they're employing these large direct primary care practices and they're delivering excellent care. I want to be clear about this, but they're having problems with musculoskeletal cost containment and those problems are kind of getting away from them. So I would like to develop my role in that a little bit more. And I think that's scalable as well. But that's kind of separate and apart from me, the day-to-day of me seeing patients. Yeah. I learned a ton in this conversation. I really appreciate your time, Dr. Paul. If people want to get a hold of you, where can they do that? So I have a website, easyorthopedics.com. You can email info at easyorthopedics.com. And then we also, I'm also on LinkedIn a lot. I think it's Daniel Paul MD or Easy Orthopedics. And I post there pretty regularly. And then we have a a YouTube channel as well. And actually, I'm going to brag about this. They just introduced YouTube handles and I was really fast to get one. So I got like YouTube slash at orthopedics. Uh, it's like, I need to, I'm going to look into this as soon as we're done in this conversation. You got to so. get the handle, man. Otherwise, someone's going to take it. But it's like, you know, it's having like a, like being like David at AOL.com yeah, to get those right. like early handles. And like, who knows if they'll do anything, but yeah, I don't know. I did that. So. It's cool to be an OG. There. Unfortunately, there's yeah. another Justin Harvey out there who is an early adopter for everything. So I'm always like third. Yeah, you get, get you got to get that handle before the other Justin Harvey gets it. Fortunately, I'll get to it before this episode goes live. Uh, well, <laughs> Dr. Paul, thank you very much for joining us. This conversation has been a lot of fun. I appreciate your time today. Yeah, well, thanks for having me on. If you liked what you heard this week, head on over to apmsuccess.com where you can find more content and free resources to help you build a successful career in anesthesia and pain management. If you wanted to leave a review in iTunes, I'd also really appreciate it. Thanks for using some of your valuable time to join me today on APM Success.